Good morning. This is a message from isolation. Uh, as we know, the coronavirus has changed a lot in our world and in our church services. I am preparing this message today for March the 29th, 2020. Folks, there's a lot of concern, especially in a pastor, in a pastor's world, about the fact, well, Easter is coming. And we are locked down, Good Friday services, Easter sunrise service, the church breakfast, uh, Easter cantata, which the choir has been preparing, and it is a beautiful cantata. All of these things, though, are undergoing changes in one way or another. We may not even be able to uh, meet together in this building for our Easter services all these things we understand, we're getting used to changes. Preaching to you over the website is very useful, but it's not the same. We're working on an idea, and you will hear from me soon about this, as to how we might be able to have Easter services, and uh, we will let you know in the weeks to come. Right now, it just looks like we're prevented from meeting together for several weeks to come. I think this is a very good time to address the Easter message. I usually take this time around Easter to do a resurrection series, and this week is the week that I plan to begin it anyway. In a way, I think maybe even the events of our world are setting the table for us in the whole message of the resurrection of Christ. If you will remember, the resurrection took place in a setting where all the disciples were as discouraged as can be, and, uh, yes, they were locked in. They were locked in the upper room, uh, afraid to even come out. So, it's kind of interesting how there are some similarities, anyway, as to the fact that the resurrection of Christ is always set in a dark background. And I think that's very good for us. Um, this sermon series is called, What God Has Done. It's the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to cover several different passages over the next few weeks. But let's be straight about something. Without the resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. Just like our world is showing to us regularly in the news reports and in the stock market summaries, hope, you see, is not manufactured in a factory or in a boardroom or in the good efforts of man. Hope is found solely in the resurrected Christ. Yes, you heard me right. Hope is found solely in the resurrected Christ. Now, I'm not talking about that puny thing people call hope when they see the sun come out at, or they begin to feel better or the stores open again. All of those things you know are temporary because the sun will go down and we're likely to feel ill again someday. And stores do open and stores do close. These things that happen may be encouraging, but we're talking about hope here. And there is only one true hope. That hope, as we read it in Scripture, is what I have defined as confident expectation. I read that many years ago in a dusty old uh, language thesaurus, and I thought, what a perfect set of words. Confident expectation. It is that which has been given to us by our Heavenly Father through His 
resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. I call it confident expectation because its confidence is built upon our Father's character and our Father's actions toward us. He has been entirely truthful and faithful to us. He has loved the unlovely. He's given mercy to the undeserving. He's instilled grace in the graceless. He's anchored us in his hope. A solid expectation that everything he has done is true and real. And everything that he has promised is also true and real. Too often, I'm afraid, we parade around with the I hope so crowd. Weaving a little bit of doubt into the fabric of our theology. Too often we rob our Lord of his glory. Because we measure him by our own inadequacies, and by our frailties, and by our shortcomings. There is nothing, folks, nothing more concreting, and really that is a verb, I looked it up, to the message of hope we have, and listen, we have it, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I dare say this is a message we need today. We are returning to our study of Revelation after Easter. I promised a half time when we reached chapter number 11, and here it is. It's perfect timing, if you ask me, for I'm desperately eager to share with you a message today from my favorite book of the Bible. I'm sure you have a favorite one, too. First Peter. Let's go to chapter number 1, dig through the first five verses, and put the emphasis upon verse number 3. So, start with me. Hopefully you have your Bibles open at this point. I'm reading from a New American Standard Version, but I'm sure that the words are very similar to what you have too. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord, there's an awful lot here for us to learn, and as we just bow our heads for a minute and talk to you, we're going to study your word, and we're going to see this hope that you have given to us, and I'm asking you to encourage Encourage the folks that are listening today. Draw them close to yourself. and Show them the beauty of your word, the beauty of your promise, the beauty of your presence and your power in our lives, the great things you have done for us. Uh, may we come away rejoicing for what you have done. Thank you for that. Help us now as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, go back with me and look at verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now you see why I chose this area. We're talking about the resurrection of Christ, aren't we? 
down at the very end, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our Easter story. It's important for us to note something. Note who has received this message. I'm not talking about just you and me as I speak, you're listening. I'm talking about these words written in Peter's book. Who received this letter? To whom did Peter write, and, and why did he write? Those are questions we always ask in Bible study, because it gives us a context, a historical context of audience and location and, and other factors in there, too. So, let's take a good look at just who in this question for you. Um, and I always tell you something. You might think at times that things are hard. But listen to these folks. In verse number one, it says they are residing as aliens, strangers. They're dwelling in a place that is not their own. If you're reading the NIV, they're called exiles. So they're living in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, but that's not their home. They reside there. They've been scattered. You see the word? Scattered. Now, they are scattered among foreign cities. You just heard the list. And maybe you know these places, and maybe you couldn't find them on a map to save your life. But these are not home to the audience Peter is speaking to. These are Gentile towns with, with pagan religious practices and societies. Now, they may have a place somewhere in their town where a Christian can go to worship. But in Peter's day, very likely, that would be a very difficult thing for any Christian to do. To publicly worship in a time of heavy, heavy persecution. Uh, this was the day of Nero, and uh, he was eagerly seeking out Christians in order to persecute them. So, I don't know that they were very comfortable in their setting. Uh, it was because of this persecution that Peter's audience is living in these places. Now, moving, for many of you know this, is hard enough. Add a couple of things to that. Moving to a foreign land, even against your desire. Moving to a culture that despises who you are as a believer. Moving by force, by persecution. These adjectives describe the people who are unsettled here. They're unstable, not mentally or such, but they're unstable. They're, everything's just thrown upside down for them. They're probably frightful. Peter will address that later in his book. They're keenly aware that they are different. Maybe they're confused. Maybe even as a believer, they've asked this question. What is God doing? Now, have you ever asked that yourself? What is God doing? Now, I found this quote, and I find it very interesting. Listen carefully. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. That's, our, that's the quandary we find ourselves in more times than not. 
that, you might say, well, that's kind of a dismal description for a believer, Pastor. Yep, but I want you to understand, that was their condition. That is the identity that the world may tack on us to make us look like we're pathetic and miserable and uh, hopeless in so many different ways because the world can't understand us. But God has a better description for us. That was their condition. This is their identity. Look back to verse number one again. Just follow along the simple concept here. First of all, like Peter, we belong to Jesus Christ. Peter, it says, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. I love that little word, of. It always does something in my thinking when I see the little word, of. Most of the time we just pass right by it as if it's kind of a part of a title or a phrase. We're used to the word, of. The of, to me, prompts a default mechanism grammatically. The Greek genitive case. The Greek genitive case, that's the word of. We use of to translate with that. It shows to whom something belongs. It's the case of possession. This says Peter, he's an apostle, who belongs to Jesus Christ. And just that phrase, belongs to Jesus Christ, is true of you as well as a believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 says what? You have been bought with a price. You know the context. You have been bought with a price. So many times we take that little word of and we don't think much of it. But I, I like to point out, it shows to us that we are the possession of Christ. We belong to him. And that's comforting, very comforting to read when the world around us is rejecting us. So we belong to Jesus Christ. We are chosen of God. That's also in our text. Sometimes you see it there at the end of verse number 1. Some might have it at the beginning of verse 2. We are chosen of God. We're elect ones. We are chosen, selected, picked out. Recipients, here's my definition, a recipient of a special privilege. And that is true. Their condition, mark you, in verse number 1, was their temporary residence in places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But I'm glad it never ended that way. The true identity is not where they're located, but by whom they have been selected. We are chosen, the text says. A recipient of a special privilege. We're precious and we're choice in the eyes of God. This world would not choose you. As a believer, they would rather have you leave. But God chose you. Not because you're a leftover, not because you're a reject or you're an unwanted creature or God felt sorry for you. What thing has God ever done that was a mistake? I hear silence. <laughs> because there is no mistake in God's ledger. So, do you really think that he made his first mistake by choosing you? Scripture says that we are chosen by God. It says God chose you by his foreknowledge. Look at that in verse number 2. His foreknowledge. Don't be afraid of this word. Here's fact number 1. God is omniscient. He never needs to learn anything 
Let me add two more words about you. He never needs to learn anything about you. God knows you. He's omniscient. Fact number two, your existence is not a surprise to him. He knows the day that you're alive. He knows the day of your death. He knows the hairs on your head. I could show you verses all over scripture to say he knows you. And your existence is not a surprise to him. But here comes the big part of this thought. Fact number three. His choosing you was not dependent upon his discovery of you. It was not based on uh, some knowledge that he gained about you. It's based on just his knowledge. And that's not on you. And that's not on me. Let, let me explain something. We operate by what I call after knowledge. We must learn, and then we do. That's our typical practice. We learn, and then we do. God operates on before knowledge. We call it foreknowledge here in this text. He didn't have to come to know us before he chose us. It's not based on experience. It's not based on history. Uh, the Greek word for this foreknowledge, part of it is the word gnosko. Gnosko is a knowledge gained by experience. It's a process type of knowledge, which we use all the time for education and such. We learn. We're learning. We're learning. We're learning. This says that God chose you before that. You see what I'm trying to say? His choice was before any of the knowledge was necessary. I know it's a big thought. I know it's a big thought. But it says several things to me. Number one, it says that God chose me without my manipulation. And you know what I mean. If we want to be noticed, if we want to be chosen by somebody, we have a way to bring that about, don't we? God's choice was not based on you. It's not based on me. It was merely his choice. It was merely his choice. He has the ability to cause things to happen without respect to our input. Sorry if that deflates you a little bit, but personally, it excites me a lot. I didn't have to win God's choice of me. This is not some spiritual fashion show here. I can go on and on about this description of a believer in Jesus Christ, and I really want to get to verse number three here. All of what I've said to you so far is based on your identity in him. These first two verses says that we belong to Jesus Christ. We are chosen of God. We are chosen by his foreknowledge. It also adds we are sanctified, which is set apart for a purpose. God did that too. We're not going to talk about it now. And we are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, which sets us up for service to him, by the way. In other words, all of this, and I left off a few of these pieces just for time's sake, all of this, God did all of this on purpose. Now, that's what I wanted to start with, because it's a, it is vital that we know who is the recipient of verse number three. That great hope we're going to talk about that we have in the resurrection of Christ is because of our identity 
in God the Father, what he has made us. There are a lot of things to unpack between verses 3 to 5. Someday we'll get to verse number 4 and 5 too. I just want to camp right here at verse number 3 for a few minutes, okay? Look carefully with me at verse number 3. Peter has suddenly broken out into a praise service here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, grammar time. All right, don't don't panic. Don't turn me off. If you have a piece of paper, this would be useful. Uh, if not, think it through in your head. Fill in the blanks, all right? Just follow along with this a little bit. Every sentence, grammatically, needs a subject. And you know that. A sentence has to have a subject, and it has to have an action. Those are the primary parts. We call it the noun and the verb. All right? The noun, subject, and the verb. The subject is always related to that action, one way or another. Now, when we go back to verse number 3, let's play this little game for a few minutes. Who is the subject of verse number 3? <laughs> okay, follow along. Let's watch it carefully. I'm going to use some Greek. You could use English. It's the same thing here because the text is obvious. But in the Greek, we have a title for this. We call it the nominative case. Nominative case. That's a noun that is the subject, and this is a beauty for me as a, a Greek teacher, is that it doesn't leave you guessing. When you see a noun in any sentence, in any place, and it's nominative, you know it's the subject of the sentence. Always is. Always, always is. So, when I want to look for my subject, all I have to do in my Greek text is look for all the nominative nouns in the sentence. That's my subject. It is every time. So I find my first one in the name God. That's nominative. Nominative. It's a personal name. Proper noun. God. Now, oh, let's back up a little bit. Even that word blessed, do you see it? That's not a verb. That's an adjective. Blessed is an adjective. Adjectives also take cases, because they attach to nouns. And this one is nominative. So, who is blessed? Who's the blessed one? Here, in the same context, same verse, it's God. Now, that's important. Hold that thought. Let's look for another nominative. Do we have one? Yes. The word Father is nominative. That's still God. Now, let's scan through a little further. you just a few words beyond all this. And you see that little word, who? The little word, who? It says, uh, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. That who is a relative pronoun. A pronoun points to a noun. And so it has to match its case. And that happens to be nominative. Who is the subject so far? It's still God. It hasn't changed. It's still pointing back to Him. Well, who... Now, skip the little prepositional phrase for a minute. The prepositional phrase is according to His great mercy. Just set that aside just for a minute. All right? And go back and read it without that. Who 
has caused us to be born again. Now you say, well, that's the verb. Well, in a way, but it's not precisely a verb. It's called a participle. A participle is a verbal noun. It's, it's both verb and noun stuck together. And in a way, it's, a, it's an active adjective. It's describing, not by words like big or tall or fast, but words that are moving, like causing or making or doing. And it's an adjective that way. That's how you could identify who it's pointing to. This is a nominative participle. So if it's nominative, it goes with the other nominatives. And all of those stand together and say, God. God is the subject. God is the Blessed One. God is the Father. God is the one who has caused us to be born again. That's all God. Okay. Stop right there on the subject, because... The point has been made, I think, pretty easily. God is the subject of the sentence. And if he's the subject of the sentence, he is the one related to the action. He is the one doing something here. We are not doing the action. We are not causing this action. We are not the subject. Listen now. This is important. So the adjective blessed be, as we see in this text, does not address itself to us. I said that on purpose. Far too often we, we mix a lot of man's action into our doctrinal story and somehow insert ourselves in as the subject of these verbs. I challenge anyone to find grammatically or theologically how we could have brought about our own salvation. Anytime you insert yourself into the subject here, you are claiming the adjective of blessed too, and you are taking the glory from God. I said that, and it sounds very serious, doesn't it? And I think that should be said that way. You see, his actions are his actions. We did not help him decide that. We did not help him do it. He did it. His actions, matter of fact, was according to his great mercy. Let's pull back our prepositional phrase for a minute. He got, he, he's got an abundance of mercy. And he operates in proportion to that abundance. And this great mercy has worked in the fashion of the verb. What is the verb here? We've mentioned it a few times, but we don't have to go too far in our sentence to see it. He caused us to be born again. It's embedded in that participle. He caused us to be born again. There again, folks, I know we didn't do it. We did not cause our own physical birth, did we? And we certainly can't cause our own spiritual birth. Give the credit to where it belongs. Our subject is God, and our God did the action. He caused us to be born again. If you're looking for yourself in all these things, uh, I, yes, you are there. The word us is in the sentence, and it is the direct object of the verb, the recipient of the action. That's who we are. Just to make this point and make it strong enough, I hope. On our part, we're simply the receiver of the action. 
the mercy, the foreknowledge, the choosing, the belonging. We're responders to what God has done. I, I'm not going to complain about that. That's not a bad description, is it? Look what all of this is now. Where did he put all this together? What, where, where's it going from here? It says, into a living hope. Into a living hope. That's actually the Greek. It says, to a living hope, maybe in your text. But I use the word into, because we're talking about the preposition ice. Now, if you're taking notes, this is easy for you to do. Draw a box. Just a simple box. In your mind, if you're just doing this in your mind, or on your paper, write a label on that box and call it Living Hope. Alright, you just labeled, labeled your box, Living Hope. Now, mentally, or if you can graphically, stuff yourself into that box. Stuff yourself. You're outside, and you are stuffed inside. That's the word ice. That's a preposition, into. And that's the one used here in this text. It's another picture of what God has done. He has put us inside the box of living hope. It's literally the result of what God has done. And notice, it's not a little hope. It's not a general hope. It's not even a pretty good hope. But technically, it's an actively, continually living hope. That's a strong way to say it, but it's accurate to the text. An actively, continually living hope. It can be called that. And it can be expected to remain living as long as it is based on the one who is living and always living. Notice your text. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, the, this living hope is not based on circumstances. It's not based on outcomes. It's not based on good days. It's not based on residence. It's not based on us. Aren't you glad? But, mark this, it is so important. It is directly attached through that's by means of the resurrected Savior. In other words, he did it. He maintains it. Our hope is as alive as he is. Our hope will stay alive as long as he does. And scripture says that he is alive evermore. And so is our hope. I wanted you to hear that today. Far too often, hope is kind of like the stock market to us. It rises and it falls, and, it, and it's because it's based on the wrong thing. You, you anchor it to the temporary things of this world, and it's always going to look like that. You anchor your real hope to Jesus Christ, and it remains living because he's always living. That's the beauty of the resurrection here, and I'm so glad Peter attached these two words together. He didn't just say you have a living hope. He says you have a living hope by means of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Those words are essential to our hope. You cannot separate them from our hope. There is no real hope apart from Jesus Christ. 
I started with that, and I bring it back up here again, because all of this is what God has done. These are the results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to us. It's not so that we have a red day on our calendar, a holiday, a day off from work, a, a, a day to have a church cantata, or some other thing. Because, honestly, folks, we can actually get past Easter without any of those things and still have what Easter is all about. We have hope through Jesus Christ. Living hope because we have a living Savior. So, can you have confidence in this? Are your expectations concreted today? I really don't want you to go through another day thinking that everything is dependent upon you or yourself to see this through. God's promises are enough. Now, we say that, but think about it. Scripture says, heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word will never pass away. Do you really believe that? Do you believe what God has said? Do you believe how God has just described you as a believer in Jesus Christ? Maybe some of that was new to you, and, and now you've got to wrap your mind around that and say, wow, Pastor, that's all. this is incredible. Does he really see me like this? Yes, he does. He sees you like this because of Jesus Christ. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, God can describe you in incredible ways. Do you believe that your hope is alive? That your hope is as permanent as the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead? What a great time in history for us to study the resurrection. I trust today that your heart has been encouraged through these words. You can contact me if you have any questions. If you simply just want to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's, that's a theme I love. I believe that only Jesus Christ can save you. And I believe he will save you. Because scripture says... Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will never be disappointed in calling upon him. Never. If you want to talk about that too, I'd love to talk to you about that. You can contact me and we'll talk. All right. That's where I want to leave you today with some words from Peter. Go back over them again carefully. Read them through. Rejoice with what you see in verse number three. And may it, may it uplift you. Yeah, the circumstances may not be so good right now, but the theology is wonderful, and I hope that it's touched your heart today. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those who have heard today what your word has said. I did not write this. You did. You used a man named Peter who knew disappointment very, very well. He was one that we read in Scripture was marked in such an incredible uh, amount of uh, discouragement and weeping because of his denial of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. But what a man to write that we have a living hope. He knew it from his own life. He knew it from his Savior. And I pray, Lord, that uh, today, even if we're standing here in in dismay of some kind or concern or maybe we're not well, Maybe we have a lot of other things on our heart. Thank you for putting this in our heart today. And I pray that it hits its mark. And I pray that we go on rejoicing from here. 
Keep your hand upon us, Lord. Protect our church. Protect our people. Keep us healthy. And uh, bring us together again soon, we pray. Thank you for your love that never, never goes away. And it's in our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have it and that we pray. Amen. Don't hang up yet. <laughs> Listen, uh, it's hard to finish a sermon without a song. And uh, many years ago, I heard a song played by Michaela Brown. And I contacted her and asked her if I could use her song for my sermon webcast. And uh, she gave me permission to do that. And I used it just once or twice. But uh, I want to play it here. It's so fitting, and it's going to match our thing. And if you want to learn more about her or her music, you can easily go online and Google Michaela Brown, and you will find a great blessing with her music. Very energetic. So enjoy the song as uh, we finish our service today. <laughs> 